this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Garki, and I have with me Professor Wenzel, who teaches at Columbia University in the U.S. She's the author of several books, uh, most recent of which is The Disposition of Nature, Environmental Crisis, and World Literature, uh, published with the Fordham University Press in 2020. And she joins me today to talk about this book. Hello, Professor Wenzel. How are you today? Hi, Gargi. I'm doing well. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to um, to talk about my work. Um, it's it's a it's a really wonderful opportunity. You're most welcome. Uh, as always, I would like to start from the beginning. What is the genesis of this book? How did you come to write this book? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple moments of, of genesis that I could talk about, um, and and one is while I was finishing my first book. I knew that I wanted to do something about the intersection between post-colonial studies and eco-criticism um, uh, as the direction for my, my next book. Um, and at the time, I'd say, you know, around uh, 2008, 2009, there was also this burgeoning conversation on world literature. So basically, I was trying to triangulate these three conversations that I saw as not in conversation with each other, post-colonial studies in a kind of rivalry with world literature as frameworks for thinking about literature beyond the, the U.S. and the U.K. in the Anglophone context. Um, uh, world literature and environmental studies as both kind of interested in the world as a whole, uh, but in, in different, very different version, versions of the world, the, you know, the world literature or globe of, of world, uh, world or, or globe of world literature and the earth or planet of, um, of environmental studies. Um, and then, uh, you know, what became familiar through the rise of, of post-colonial eco-criticism um, to, to think about uh, the history of European empire um, as it shaped uh, not only the conditions of possibility of world literature, as somebody like Amir Mufti uh, would, would come to analyze, but also um, the, um, the impacts of imperialism on, uh, on local ecologies and on, 
uh, and on the environment at a planetary scale, uh, you know, as we can see with climate change. So that's that's kind of one moment of trying to think what felt like three very separate conversations together. I can also tell a, a much older uh, origin story that dates back to writing my dissertation at the University of Texas at Austin in the mid-1990s. Um, and so when I was um, trying to write a chapter of the dissertation on Mahashwita Devi, um, which, you know, I, I think that that dissertation chapter finds a kind of new life uh, in uh, the disposition of nature, that that chapter on Mahashwita Devi in the book is is not at all what I wrote in my dissertation, but, you know, the, there is a kind of um, continuity there. So I was talking with uh, my advisor, Barbara Harlow, about what I was seeing in, in the fiction and activism of um, Hashwita Devi um, on behalf of India's indigenous peoples and was kind of thinking about and talking with her about extreme situations of environmental degradation. And what Barbara said to me, it was almost like a, a kind of um, adjustment in a yoga class, you know, like the brief adjustment uh, to, to your body that makes such a difference. She just said to me, you know, um, what if instead of environmental degradation, you thought about environmental justice instead? Um, and so, you know, it was a question that she asked me in, in the mid 1990s. But I think that that question really runs through the book in conversation with something like um, Rob Nixon's idea of uh, environmental harm is unevenly universal. Right. So it's a question that I've been thinking about for a long time, uh, but really took up. Um, as I was writing uh, this book. Um, and I would say that, you know, it, it, what I'm trying to do in the book, um, I'm, I'm not sure it's an origin story exactly, but it, it, in terms of the goals of the book, I could say that I'm, I'm seeking to challenge uh, three um, problematic assumptions. Uh, one is that environmental concern is a unique invention of the West uh, to be shared with the rest of the world. Another is that globalization is a recent phenomenon uh, beginning only in the 20th century. And then the third uh, would be that European imperialism is over, um, uh, both in its material effects um, and as a framework for analyzing the present. So I think those are the kind of three core goals of the book that came together out of these uh, origin moments. Um, thank you for your answer. I would talk to, like to talk about the title of your book and especially the subtitle, which is Environmental Crisis and World Literature. You touched upon this a little bit in, in, in your answer, but if you could flesh out a little bit for us, why is environmental degradation or environmental justice an issue for world literature? Yeah, so I think maybe to, to turn the, the question on its head a bit and, and to say that at the moment that I was starting to think about what I might want to do um, with the next book, it seemed to me that, you know, in the first decade of, of the 21st century, there was this burgeoning new conversation on world literature, right? A new attempt to make world literature um, kind of match uh, the ambition that 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 name implies, right? To mo really move world literature beyond um, uh, a European uh, comparison. I'm thinking of the work of of people like David Damrosch, Pascal Casanova, Franco Moretti. Um, so there's there's this kind of new excitement around world literature. At the same time, that I think that there was um, in, in those years a, a kind of burgeoning conversation around eco-criticism and attempt to um, to make eco-criticism uh, think in less local and more um, planetary terms. 
but neither of those conversations really felt like they were intersecting with each other. And so it just really struck me that, um, that uh, eco-criticism, I'm thinking of the work of someone like Ursula Heise, is really starting to try to think about um, eco-criticism as engaged with questions of the planet. World literature is trying to move beyond Europe, right, to think about the world as a whole. And those are conversations that it seems like should be in conversation with each other, but weren't. And one thing that was really striking to me about the world literature conversation with those, those three figures, Damrosh, Casanova, and Moretti, is the ways that they would kind of draw on uh, metaphors drawn from, from nature. Uh, so, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Casanova's casting of, of literature as natural resources or um, Moretti's kind of thinking in terms of, of trees. But, but those kind of remained at the level of metaphor rather than actually tracking the, um, the circulation of, of actual material uh, natural resources and how those intersected with um, the production and circulation of literature, um, which is, you know, it's a, it, it, I think um, you, you kind of see my trying to think those things together um, in the second chapter of the book where I talk about the Niger Delta and, and try to think about um, uh, the petroleum industry, both in relationship to the extractive industries that preceded it uh, in uh, palm oil and enslaved people, but also to think about the relationship between the petroleum industry and the publishing industry, right? So in, in other words, to bring those, those conversations together about, you know, if Damrosh taught us that world literature is about circulation, um, what about those other kinds of material uh, circulations? I think that's the impulse of, of the book is to basically to braid together two kinds of reading that I was doing that felt like they, they weren't um, cognizant of each other. And I think that's changed in recent years, but it's, it's the kind of origin uh, moment for the book. I think that someone like um, uh, Amir Mufti um, in his book that came out after that, that kind of initial moment for me does just really wonderful work in thinking about um, European uh, imperialism and specifically the the kind of practices and ideologies of Orientalism as a condition of possibility for the emergence of world literature. And so I think I'm trying to do something parallel in thinking about the workings of uh, European imperialism on the natural world as another kind of condition of possibility for world literature. Yeah. Uh, I would also like to talk about the cover of your book, which I found very fascinating. I mean, it, I mean, when I looked at it, I was saying, "Is is this India?" <laughs> then I thought, "No, no, this is not India." <laughs> uh, but it is uh, Arezianto Duhan, which you very kindly corrected me. I misspelled his name. Um, which uh, I mean, if if one were to look at it, it looks like like plastic objects or pottery bright red in going inside the forest is this is it something that you chose as a cover for your book it's absolutely something i chose and and i and i'm i'm very happy to talk about it um my editor was actually hoping 
um, that the cover image would uh, would be an, in, uh, a book on the environment that would have human figures in it. But I was, you know, I was really opposed to that. And maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later because I think the book is all about um, kind of constructing relations between different geographic sites, constructing relationships. You know, I, I talk about reading from near to there, um, and so. It, to my mind, you know, putting one a, a single human figure on the cover of the book would kind of localize. Uh, uh, um, it would suggest a localized uh, image of what the book was doing. So I was I was really um, uh, excited to come across um, Duran's uh, washed up series of photographs where he takes um, plastic, uh, you know, trash and and recyclables and um, arranges them back into landscapes. And, and to me, it was, you know, there, there are lots of examples of, uh, of trash art or plastic art, but it was his kind of, um, uh, you know, arranging as in the, in the Vena, um, image that's on the cover, arranging this, this red plastic so that it looks like a, a flow of, you know, possibly water or, or lava, um, running through, um, through a landscape. Um, and, Part of the reason I was so excited about that is that I think that it, um, that, you know, it, you described your own <laughs> reaction to it was, you know, you kind of looked at it and, and then you looked again. And I think that that's exactly what I have in mind with the title, The Disposition of Nature, um, which was it, it w- which was a late uh, change uh, to the title. Uh, so for a very long time, uh, this project in my head was called uh, Reading for the Planet. Um, but uh, I had to change it um, rather late in the process. And by uh, the disposition of nature, I have in mind the kind of dual meaning of disposition, which we can think of as meaning something like temperament, uh, what what kind of thing nature is. And we can also think of it in terms of um, the the disposal or or the disposing of natural resources, what what we do with them or to them. And so what I'm arguing with that title is that um, the ways that we think about what nature is are connected to conflicts over how we inhabit it and use it, right? And so kind of putting pressure on or historicizing, complicating our ideas about what nature is and how literature and other cultural imagining shape our ideas about what nature is, I think is performed exactly in that double take of, of looking at that photograph and you're thinking, wait, <laughs> what is that? Right. And, and what I had imagined maybe was, was something organic running through the landscape is actually this, these very artfully arranged pieces of red plastic. So, uh, I gave a copy of, of the book when it came out to my parents, uh, who are not academics and my mom, um, bless her heart, read the whole thing. Um, and my dad will, will never read a page of it, but when he, he, you know, he took it in his hands, um, and he looked at the cover and, and he said, wait, what is that? And, and, and so in some ways, he, he did read the book uh, in a way that was really uh, meaningful to me to kind of do that, that double take. There's also, I think, in um, I haven't talked uh, to Duran about this. I don't know him, but but in that uh, Vena image, I, I think there's also um, I at least uh, hear or see an echo of um, Eduardo Galeano's Open Veins of Latin America. So I think that the the image uh, Vena kind of evokes all kinds of flows um, that are at stake in the image. And I guess the last thing I would say about it. Um, is that it 
um, th there's something about it in, in terms of how crisp the image is and, and how well you're able to make out these individual pieces of plastic. And you can imagine the, all of the kind of trajectories that brought these different kinds of, you know, different pieces of plastic together uh, in this one site, um, including the, the extraction of the oil that was used, you know, the petrochemicals that were used to make the plastic. And so if you hold the book in your hand, you can look at it close up and, and, and kind of imagine the trajectories of all of those individual pieces of plastic. Whereas if you look at it from across the room, it kind of, you know, um, it, it becomes a, a kind of more general composite image. And that, um, you know, uh, close up and distance, I think, for, for me, pr performs some of the relations at work in reading for the planet. So I cannot imagine a more kind of perfect uh, <laughs> image for the book. And, I, and I'm so grateful to him uh, for allowing me to use it. It's I think it really just kind of makes makes the book in all kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, very early in the book, I think it's page four, you say, in a broader sense, this book is about what globalization means, period. Can you elaborate uh, on this sentence? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that gesture of broadening, right? So what, what does globalization mean, you know, just just in itself um, comes after, a, you know, a statement where I say that, you know, in some ways, the book is about what contemporary neoliberal globalization means for world literature or the environment. But what I'm trying to do in, in the introduction as a way of setting up the book as a whole is to think about globalization in a very expanded sense. Um, expanded historically to think back to things like uh, European colonization and the slave trade as earlier waves of globalization or earlier waves of, uh, of world making um, in order to kind of, I suppose we could say, provincialize um, that kind of contemporary uh, 1990s, we are the world uh, version of, of globalization. Um, and I think that, um, uh, uh, you know, in terms of what, what do we talk about when we say uh, globalization, um, I think it's, it's possible, as I say in that introduction, to read uh, climate change uh, as a product of those successive waves of globalization, which is a way of, of thinking of globalization as something that puts pressure not only on uh, uh, nations and nation states, uh, but also works at the level of, of molecules and the atmosphere. Um, so to think about um, industrialization and the combustion of fossil fuels, or to think about post-war uh, industrial chemistry as having um, recirculated uh, molecules uh, across uh, the planet, across the atmosphere, in a way similar to um, you know, something like uh, the geographers um, Lewis and Maslin talk about um, the um, the Colombian uh, encounter, uh, and I'm saying that in, in, in all of its uh, senses, including violence, as having begun this recirculation of other kinds of matter, people, um, uh, you know, enslaved people, settlers, but also uh, things like uh, corn and potatoes, right? These kind of um, uh, plants. Um, so people, plants, power. And so I see the kind of 20th century, um, 19th and 20th century recirculation of atoms and, and molecules as part of those processes of globalization. Yeah. And um, uh, when you're talking about uh, Niger Delta, um, you say that 
you are thinking in terms of legibility and intelligibility rather only visibility and how do you distinguish between legibility or, or intelligibility and visibility yeah i mean i think it's you know it it, it may come uh, out of the enlightenment um uh, just in in terms of the the kind of basic you know crude meaning of enlightenment as shutting light right uh, to, to become enlightened or, or to illuminate and so I think that we get from um, from the Enlightenment and, and other um, other ways of thinking about what literature and and other kinds of cultural production do that they shed light on things. In other words, they make things more visible. And I think that 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 idea of, of visibility um, it. it it risks a, a kind of binary notion of things uh, being either invisible or visible, right? And and in this way of thinking, literature is meant to make things more visible, to expose them to, to understanding. So do you see it or not? And one of the problems with I have with that binary view of just making things more visible is is to you know think about things that are like completely visible, right? But are just kind of not seen. Um, not recognized, or things that are actually hypervisible um, and are spectacularized or are subject to surveillance, and those kinds of visibility, I think, don't um, don't um, we, we can't think of them in terms of the assumption about shedding light, which is to better understand something, uh, perhaps in in order to to act on it. And so I, it's why I, I thought for a long time about this book in terms of reading and reading for the planet, um, because what's at stake for me in legibility, um, or um, Rob Nixon uses the word apprehension, right, to be able to apprehend. And what he means by apprehension is to be able to understand something, to kind of to, to sense it, to be able to understand it. And perhaps, uh, you know, in the, in the sense of apprehension, he doesn't mean it in a, a carceral, carceral or criminal sense, but if you think about what it means to apprehend someone on the street, right, it means to stop them. Um, so for him, apprehension is, is to read and understand and possibly to be able to interrupt or intervene. Um, so th- that's why legibility to me suggests the capacity not only to see, um, but also to understand, to make sense of, and possibly uh, to take action. Right. Um, so th- I think that's that for me is is what's at stake in, in that in, in that shift from seeing to reading. And in and, and the same chapter, you're also uh, putting forth the notion of unimagining. Um, which I found, found very fascinating. How, how does one define unimagining something? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, it, my thinking about that just came from this repeated observation as I was starting to read for the book um, and, and, you know, concentrating my reading in these sites of environmental crisis and how often, you know, one comes across uh, the adjective unimaginable. Right. So I noticed that this adjective unimaginable tends to be invoked to describe um, uh, situations that are just extreme and often extremely bad. And so it felt like um, unimaginable started becoming used as a label that said um, 
we can't understand this, almost a, a kind of sense of sublimity around it, right? But the 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 kind of incl- implicit claim that we can't understand it, it felt to me like that label gets invoked as a kind of end stop to thinking, right? We can't understand it, so we don't need to think about it anymore. And so I started thinking about unimagining as a, a kind of um, as a verb, right? Um, and as a transitive uh, process of imagining that is connected to uh, how a situation becomes unimaginable. Uh, For whom is it unimaginable? Um, And so, you know, for me, there's a kind of parallel to um, understanding underdevelopment, not as uh, not as a, a lack of development, but a process of the kind of um, uh, repression or um, negative impacts on a previous state of development. So underdevelopment as a transitive process, that uh, you know, a, a, a place that we call underdeveloped was made that way. It didn't begin that way. So how are how are situations made uh, unimaginable? I think is what I have at stake uh, in in that um, in that. Relation, so it, I think it's connected to um, what I call in in the book a, a quarantine of the imagination, right? The, the ways in which we um, we, we uh, kind of run into limits uh, in our capacity to imagine, and so uh, that that label unimaginable unimaginable is kind of like closing a box on something and saying you know we need not or cannot think about it anymore. And so I'm interested in, in how, where those quarantines of the imagination come from and, and how, how we might uh, break through them. Can you give an example of the same to make it more concrete? Maybe, uh, you know, I can go to a, a short story that I talk about only just very briefly in the book, um, but is, uh, is, is really important in, in my teaching. I just taught it a few weeks ago. And this is um, Italo Calvino's short story, The Petrol Pump, um, which was written um, uh, in the midst of the first oil shock in the 1970s, when the price of oil suddenly quadrupled um, and, you know, led to all kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know, consternation around the globe, which I I think we can kind of feel, uh, you you know, things are feeling more and more like the seventies now. And the, the, the reason I'm going to the petrol pump as uh, as an example to flesh out this idea of, of a quarantine of the imagination is that um, the story does just some kind of, it does a lot of really astonishing things about sta- the, the narrator staging what is happening in the mind of the story's protagonist who is doing one very simple thing, which is driving around in the middle of the day in Italy, looking for a gas station that's open because he's running out of gas, right? That's, that is what happens at the, (laughs) in the whole story, right? And he ends up finding finally a, a gas station that's open. So he's pumping gas and the thoughts that, (laughs) that this protagonist has while he's driving around and uh, while he's pumping gas, range from the kind of processes that begin millions of years ago when tiny sea creatures uh, fall to the bottom of the ocean floor and begin to sediment into the, um, the fossil fuels that he'll end up pumping into his tank. And then he imagines into the future to the time uh, after oil when all, you know, in the words of the story, all of the 
you know, all of the, the machines and engines will stop running all of a sudden and out will come the wrath, this kind of apocalyptic imagining. And so while he's pumping gas, while he's, he's finally found the, the gas, um, he's, there's this astonishing passage where he imagines um, uh, to a, a place uh, in a kind of unnamed place in, in the Middle East uh, where an emir is kind of folds his hands. He imagines uh, an oil tanker uh, changing direction in the middle of the ocean. He imagines a computer uh, in the 1970s in a, uh, an oil company, Skyrise. Um, so he's kind of imagining all of these relations across space and time that make that moment of pumping gas possible. And what I talk about with my students is how very different his experience of pumping gas is from most of our experience of pumping gas. And so that to me is an example of a kind of quarantine of the imagination where we kind of stand mindlessly at the pump, right? Um, pumping gas, as opposed to the ranging of the imagination of this protagonist and uh, vicariously the ranging of the imagination of the reader of this story um, to recognize what, what is usually left out of that experience, right? Um, so uh, that, that kind of uh, banal experience of pumping gas, I think, is the, the quarantined imagination. Um, uh, so uh, I think that's, that's the example I would give. Yeah, and and very close to this is my next question, where you say that reading for the planet situates between the micrologically specific and the world historical. Is that what you meant when you said that? Kind of, yeah. I think I think very much those similar kinds of imagining across uh, space, across time, across um, realms of existence. But I think with micrologically specific, I, I have in mind some some particular things that I talk about in the book. Uh, one would be the Niger Delta context, uh, where one of the things that the phrase "blood oil" means is um, hydrocarbons running through um, water streams and bloodstreams, uh, whether human or, or non-human. Um, I also, in the, in the chapter about um, Bhopal, um, which ends up also being a chapter about Vietnam and a chapter about the United States and the ways in which um, chemicals uh, um, uh, permeate uh, human bodies and uh, wreak their effects at the level of human cells, I think there that um, Stacey Alimo's idea of transcorporeality and the flows of matter and power and ideas across bodies um, is really powerful. And, you know, that's the, that's the micrological part, right? The, the working of, of these substances um, in human cells. And the world historical part is to think about the long and overlapping histories that, um, that are behind the circulation of, um, of, of those substances, right? So to think about um, Dow Chemical and Union Carbide um, and, and their work in different places, or to think in even broader terms, that kind of globalization period um, idea in terms of the, the earlier um, relations between places that precede, um, uh, precede those uh, corporate structures and shape uh, the ways that, um, uh, that, that matter and ideas and people are, are trafficked. Um, so that that's the like from you know from from the cells of bodies to, to those broader planetary circulations. 
you know and i found the third chapter very interesting because especially because of the first line which says waste is what it waste isn't what it used to be uh, and can you tell me how the meaning of the word waste has changed and what is the significance of the semantic change for for us for for people who want to read for the planet yeah, so I mean, I want to acknowledge that that my treatment of the kind of semantic uh, changes in the meaning of waste is is kind of circumscribed. Um, I have a colleague, uh, Eleanor Johnson, who's a medievalist, who has just amazing things to say about what waste means uh, in uh, medieval English. But the the shift that I'm interested in is is somewhat later, um, and that is um, waste, uh, and and specifically wasteland in the sense that John Locke uh, uses to describe um, the, um, the continent of America or you know, what, what became known as the continent or continents of, of America or the Americas as um, this wasteland in the sense of, in Locke's sense, not, not mine, but uh, Locke's sense of this um, unimproved land, which is just you know, awaiting um, to be, quote unquote, you can't see my quotes, <laughs> my air quotes, but to, it's awaiting uh, to being used properly, quote unquote, by uh, through colonization and enclosure and improvement, right? So taking what is perceived to be uh, Europeans as unproductive land and making it productive. So that's, that's what wasteland is. And so what I'm interested in is you know, an idea um, that um, that I associate with Gayatri Spivak, which sees uh, colonialism and imperialism as the transformation of these quote-unquote empty, unimproved wastelands, these opportunities um, for development and capital accumulation, how those wastelands are transformed into wasted lands and wasted lives, right? So in other words, the, the kind of uh, first uh, notion that I associate with Locke of the wastelands are at a beginning of a process, right? The, these kind of opportunities and the wastedness is a kind of uh, byproduct. So I think, you know, when I say waste isn't what it used to be, it's it's both the kind of thinking about waste as we use it today uh, as a kind of byproduct or end product um, that, that's the result of a process. Um, so how the, the kind of, you know, the further kind of complication of the idea is, okay, if we have waste in this earlier sense as this kind of original opportunity, we have wastedness as, as that byproduct, then I think it's also interesting to think about how these, these byproducts, waste products, um, uh, including ideas of human surplus, right, wasted um, lives, themselves in a kind of cycle become a new frontier for capital accumulation, right? So they become another kind of resource that that is uh, sitting awaiting from this uh, this particular kind of you know thinking about um, about um, relations among uh, people and, and matter, they become a new opportunity um, for that kind of profit making. Um, um, one of the very powerful ideas in this book is that multinational corporations can be one of the axes for literary comparison. And I, I was thinking more in terms of India, but um, how can you give an example of, of, of what, uh, what you are doing here is how can this be done? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could back up a minute and and just think about why it's why it's worth doing, um, or or how I started thinking about it, and that is that I think, you know, since the uh, you know European nineteenth century emergence of of nations, nation states, national languages as having shaped to a large degree in the discipline of literary, literary studies how we organize our discipline. Right. So what, what kind of uh, categorizations do we make? And the nation state and the national language are kind of an almost, uh, you know, unexamined um, premise for just how you how you divide up a curriculum or, or, or a discipline. And I think that globalization uh, in its kind of uh, 20th century, late 20th century um, uh, instance has put a lot of pressure on that logic of, of the national literature department or the national language as, as, as a kind of natural way of thinking about literature. But it seems to me that as, as globalization in its latter senses intersects with literary studies, that there's a kind of vacuum where the globe really doesn't do much work as a way of organizing literary studies. So that's how I started thinking about the, the multinational corporation as something that is much more discreet and offers a, a kind of different map of, uh, of, of literary relations. So in the book, um, you know, to turn to your, your, um, request for an example, what I kind of start to do, um, and, and this is by no means a, a project that I complete, and I'll, I'll say more about why that's impossible in a minute, but I, as, as a kind of test case for this idea that we could use the multinational corporation as an access for literary comparison, I take, um, uh, Union Carbide, which is later acquired by uh, Dow Chemical, and think about the, I think it's, uh, I don't know, more than 160 nations or something like that, where those companies are operating, right? So from one sense, maybe that corporation isn't much more specific than the globe, right? Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of literary comparisons, but what I do as as a very small step toward this is to think about um, Indra Sinha's uh, novel *Animals People*, which is about the um, gas disaster at a Union Carbide uh, plant in Bhopal, India. Um, and so I, you know, I do a kind of really extensive reading of that novel, but as a kind of um, as a beginning toward that comparative work of, of taking Dow and Union Carbide as an axis, I put it in conversation with uh, Muriel Rukeyser's, um long poem, Book of the Dead, which is a long poem written about a, a disaster in West Virginia in the 1930s in, involving um, a company that would soon become Union Carbide. So kind of thinking about these um you know, there's there's very little reason why one would ever, you know, read Rukeyser in conversation with Sinha, except through this kind of overarching structure of the corporate structure of Dow Chemical having inquired Union Carbide. And, you know, I, I, why would one do this? Um, and I think it gets at that environmental crisis idea that in some ways to, to put those literatures in conversation with each other is in some ways catching up with the activism um, around these corporations, um, so um, that you know, um, it, 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 I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Shell Oil, and you know, I think we tend to associate, at least I do, uh, Shell Oil with uh, Nigeria and the Niger Delta, um, but because of the, um, the kind of spectacular uh, violence involved in the execution of uh, Kensar Wiwa and other. 
um, Niger Delta activists um, and the kind of um, role of Shell there. But there are transnational links among activists uh, uh, against Shell in places like Ireland, uh, Scotland. So th- those links among activists already exist, right? They're all, the activists are already thinking about the multinational corporation as an entity that, you know, trying to think about how to get leverage against it. It involves partly solidarity among these more local struggles that have in common this shared antagonist. So I'm, I, I can't say that I took the idea from the activists exactly of doing literature, literary comparison that way, but it came more from just thinking about um, uh, the, 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 the role of, of these corporations and how um, the, these literary texts kind of engage with that role and make it um, legible. Uh, now, you're, you're reading world literature from several different angles, and in, in, in all of these angles, you I, I am interpreting that you are saying that there has to be um, some amount of humility in when we imagine what literature can do for us. And you're saying this in the backdrop of um, um, not, if not extreme, but people being very hopeful about storytelling as one of on one of the ways to con- convince people if 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 not do anything about what climate change is doing to us do you see this do you place yourself in contradiction to this line of thought or do you think they are trying to do something very different from what you're saying no i th- i think that my my work is 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 actually um very interested in you know what we might call a narrative turn um in in um climate change activism that you know, there have been other narrative turns, uh, let, let's say, in, in human rights, um, where, you know, human rights becomes a question of narrative and storytelling. And I think what I, what I'm tr- trying to think about are, is the way, or are the ways that um, narratives um, are at work in, and, and I want to, when I say narratives, I mean, both narratives uh, that, that we find in prose fiction and narratives that we find elsewhere in the world, right? How narratives are at work all the time, whether we ask them to be or not, in shaping our ideas about what nature is, uh, what a crisis is, what justice is. And so I think absolutely to to acknowledge the power of narrative, to think about how narratives uh, can be used in the surface, sorry, in in the service of environmental movements is a really important thing, right? So uh, I think on the first page of the book, I say, you know, problems like climate change are problems of the imagination. They're problems of narrative, right? They're not merely uh, problems of of technology uh, or um, politics in the sense of um, states and and multi-state actors. But I think what I'm trying to do with that idea of humility is, is, you know, is to say that um, that there is there is no uh, direct line. There's no necessary and direct line from reading a novel to changing the world. Um, and and I think that um, it, you know I'm in conversation. 
uh, with a, you know a, a really remarkable claim uh, by Sheila Jasanoff, who's a, a scholar of science and technology studies, who makes the claim about the novel Animals People that it has done more um, for uh, movements around uh, justice for Bhopal survivors than 25 years of activism, right? Um, which is just a you know it's an amazing claim for someone to make, and and I think that our first impulse in literary studies might be to go like, yay, literature, right? You know, somebody thinks literature is, is important, but, but I think that my attention to, um, t- to, you know, what I call, you know, in conversation with people like Stephanie Lemonager and uh, Paul Ricoeur, narrative intelligence, right? So, um, to, to think about, okay, how is it that a book like Animals People does wor- work in the world? What kind of work does it do? When I finish reading that book, the situation of Bhopal survivors is unchanged, right? And so not wanting to, to kind of overestimate the, um, the, the power of that reading experience, not wanting to equate that for change in the world, but to kind of recognize that it can be the seed of change in the world. And, you know, if I'm going to say yay literature, uh, which is kind of my job, I suppose, um, uh, I, I would say two things about that, the kind of yay literature. And, and one is that um, one of the reasons I, I love literature is that it is so complicated and open and complex. And so its effects are unpredictable and multiple, uh, read by different people in different situations. So I can't predict ne- necessarily what, what a given text will do. And maybe this is not a yay literature point, right? Um, but as, as much as I want to think about the, the workings of the imagination in the world, um, it, it's really important to me that in, in the introduction to this book, I can't come out and say explicitly that literature cannot merely be seen as a solution to environmental problems because literature and other forms of cult- cultural imagining have been complicit in those crises, partly. I mean, they're not solely to blame, but in shaping what we think about nature, what we think about, um, what we think an environmental crisis is, right? So what what counts as nature? Literature it kind of is part of that process of naturalization and helping us to think about what nature is. So in some ways, literature has, is one of the things that has gotten, it, gotten us into these messes it may also be a way of understanding what the messes are and, and getting us out of them. Yeah. Um, since we're at the end of this podcast, um, I want to know, what do you hope the readers take from this book? What do you hope changes? In- yeah, I mean, I suppose it's connected to what I was just saying, that, um, that to me it boils down to um, uh, a, a kind of simple idea of, of the workings of the imagination and narratives in the world uh, for better or for worse. And, and, and the imagination is doing work in the world all the time for better and for worse. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I turn at at the end of the book to the idea from the Nigerian novelist Chinua Chebe, who talks about uh, malignant and beneficent fictions 
right? Which is to to recognize um, uh, that that we are surrounded by malignant fictions. I think they go. Some of them now go by the name of fake news, um, <laughs> which is a which is a can of worms, right? So um, that that the imagination is is an incredibly powerful thing, and and I keep writing um, in terms of the imagination as opening up alternative possibilities for the ways that things could be. But I also don't want to lose track of those malignant fictions that have, have shaped, um, shaped among other things, uh, environmental crisis. Yeah. Uh, since it's almost two years now that this book was published, uh, would it be the right time to ask what you're working on right now? What do we hope to read from you? Sure. Um, I, I think that what I'm working on now uh, boils down to two words, um, energy humanities. Um, so um, it, it, my work in energy humanities is, it has kind of run parallel to working on the disposition of nature. So chapter two of, of the book is about the Niger Delta, and it's about um, the relationship, as I said before, between publishing and, and petroleum. Um, but I've also... Um, you know, during that time, I've uh, been doing a lot of smaller uh, writing and other projects in energy humanities. Um, so um, following, uh, so in terms of what I'm doing now, um, I'm doing a new collaboration with uh, with my colleague Imra Zeman, um, following up on our edited collection, Fueling Culture, 101 Words for Energy and Environment, which was kind of a, you know, a, a capacity building uh, book in energy humanities. So we're doing a, a project called um, Energized Keywords for New Politics of Energy. And, and there we're really putting the, the, you know, the emphasis on politics, right? So how, you know, how can we change um, the, the energy regimes of the present? And then my other um, major project I'm calling um, The Fossil Fueled Imagination, How and Why to Read for Energy. And ostensibly the goal of that book is to take all of these small pieces that I've written over the past decade or so in energy humanities and make them into a book. Um, so uh, ostensibly I have lots of things laying around that, that I can simply you know put into a book, but I seem incapable of, of writing anything quickly or, or briefly. Um, but that's, that's the main project. And, um, and related to that, I think from my work in energy humanities, I've gotten more specifically interested in infrastructure as infrastructure rather than, you know, just like pipelines, um, and, and oil platforms, uh, those have been in the background of my energy humanities work, but, um, but I have a, a couple um, pieces coming out on infrastructure and I'm, um, I think embarking on a new, um, small project, uh, on infrastructure, uh, literature and politics. Um, so th- those are the, those are the things that are occupying my, my time and energy and excitement, um, in the present. They all sound fascinating. I wish you the best. Thank you for taking out the to talk to me. Thank you very much. And thanks to the listeners.